0: From the University of Pittsburgh, this is Pitt MedCast. Welcome to our Tough Questions episode, Labors and Losses. I'm Susan Wiedell.
1: And I'm Erica Lloyd.
0: In this episode, we examine the alarming rate of deaths and near deaths of new mothers in the United States. Between 2000 and 2015, The number of maternal deaths and near-deaths in the United States rose by 25 percent. African-American mothers are four times more likely to die or nearly die as a result of pregnancy than white mothers. So who are these women, and why haven't we heard more about them? According to NPR and ProPublica, it turns out there is no standard means of reporting pregnancy-related deaths. Approaches vary from state to state leaving researchers and the public alike ignorant of national or even regional trends in the data that could point to a solution. And despite attempts by states to better identify pregnancy-related deaths, for a number of reasons, the data collection is frequently prone to error.
1: Although the data pose more questions than answers, it's clear that the US has far more maternal deaths and near deaths than any other country in the developed world. In every other developed nation, These numbers continue to drop. In the United States, an estimated 700 to 900 women die of complications related to childbirth each year, and at least 60,000 women nearly die of pregnancy-related complications. Probably 70% of these deaths and near-deaths are preventable.
0: Momentum is building here in Pittsburgh and throughout Pennsylvania to find answers. The Jewish Healthcare Foundation has announced its partnering with McGee Women's Research Institute and RAND to develop a center to combat cardiovascular disease in pregnancy, a leading cause of maternal death. And the Commonwealth has established a maternal mortality review committee. In October 2018, we sat down with three Pitt professors who were on that review committee and a community leader to ask them, why are new mothers dying at an alarming rate? and what can be done to spare families from these tragedies. They are Jada Shirell, CEO of Healthy Start, which is charged with improving maternal and child health in Allegheny County, Betty Braxter, an assistant professor in the School of Nursing, Sonia Barrero, an associate professor in the School of Medicine. She also directs the Center for Women's Health Research and Innovation here. And Dara Mendez, assistant professor in the Graduate School of Public Health.
1: paraphrase ProPublica and NPR's Lost Mothers series, American women are more than three times as likely as Canadian women to die in the maternal period. They are six times as likely to die as Scandinavians. In every other developed country and many less affluent ones, maternal mortality rates have been falling. The journal Lancet noted that in Great Britain, the rate has declined so dramatically that a man is more likely to die while his partner is pregnant than she is. And though the data are difficult to get a handle on, the situation appears to be getting worse. Here's Dara Mendez, a public health researcher.
2: We've seen on the national scale, the rates have been actually increasing quite a bit. Although there are no formal national kind of rubber stamped, if you will, estimates, they still do provide some estimates, even with the limitations in the data that we have. We have seen variation by state, however. Some states we've seen Tremendous decreases in maternal mortality, California being one example of that. And there's a few things that they point to as to why they saw such a decrease. They instituted their maternal mortality review committee in, I wanna say, 2006. That state also has what would be equivalent to a perinatal collaborative, which is a group that not only takes the recommendations from the review committee, but applies them in a way that allows for those systems to act on those things. And some of the core elements that they talk about or that they've instituted in California has been more so around addressing postpartum hemorrhage or hemorrhage in general. There are no, if you will, national protocols that have been implemented across Mm -hmm. clinics and hospitals for addressing hemorrhage.
1: We discussed what other conditions in addition to hemorrhage are behind these deaths.
2: So, for example, pregnancy-related hypertension, hypertensive disorders, preeclampsia, those are some of the leading causes of you know, maternal death. And if we're thinking about morbidity in general, we also see a tremendous disparity, racial difference as well, in morbidity.
0: Here's Betty Braxter, a nurse midwife
3: we have other issues too in terms of the sedentary lifestyle that we have. Okay, you think that is a factor. I, I think we I, I, I think we have to look at factors that we know impact healthy pregnancies. Mm-hmm. And that is one. The substance abuse issue has also been talked about. And substance abuse issue, I have to share, is not something new. We've had that in the maternal arena for a long time. We're just seeing more press now because a different population is Mm -hmm. being shown as being substance abusers that end up dying. But that is nothing new within the maternal arena. But we do have the heroin problem. You know, we're now beginning to think of preconception counseling. How do we get people more healthy before they even think about becoming pregnant? at the same time i mean we're
1: i'm mostly hearing about pregnancy induced complications conditions not pre-existing conditions that are
4: well they're related to these they're related yeah. so prior to entering pregnancy obesity existing diabetes existing sort of dysregulation around metabolism can all contribute to worsening outcomes during pregnancy. I mean, pregnancy is an incredible stress on the body, and so these pre existing conditions are exacerbated.
1: That's Sonia Barrero, an internist.
4: And so, you know, a lot of attention, I think, also needs to be placed on the pre pregnancy period, although that is incredibly tricky. And there, you know, there is a lot of pushback around sort of the over medicalization of women's reproduction. We don't want to simply elevate the importance of women's health only because of their reproductive capacity, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We care deeply about women and women's mm-hmm. health for themselves. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I did a qualitative study with low-income women in Pittsburgh. We asked them, what does it mean to you to plan a pregnancy? And most of them, if not all of them, talked about the need to have your finances in order, to be married, None of them talked about optimizing health. They also recognized that the sort of the social normatives that they felt that they needed to achieve were, were really elusive. Most of these women were having, having children outside of a committed relationship and when their finances were not in order. So what they conveyed to us is that it is socially more acceptable to have an unintended pregnancy than to explicitly state that they were trying to get pregnant or open to pregnancy in these sort of non-normative circumstances. And this just blew me away. Women also talked about the fact that life had taught them that they did not have much agency around their reproduction, so they just chose Mm -hmm. to let it happen. And so all of these things really kind of fly in the face of our biomedical paradigms, which are like plan all pregnancies, right? And once you've told me that you want to have a pregnancy, I can then counsel you. We kind of have been recognizing the limitations of this very strict planning paradigm and that it doesn't actually meet women's needs or match their lived experiences or realities. So one of the first things I did was I removed planning language from my counselings, And I talk about instead, uh, or I ask permission, can we talk about preparing for the possibility of pregnancy? So I've been using preparing language. There are ways to prepare for the, you know, for, for, for pregnancy, especially if you're taking some medications or have chronic medical conditions. Because we also recognize that sometimes when we, when we talk about these issues, we seem to be imposing our own normative ideals on when who should and should not be reproducing and when they should be. And that can really erode the relationship.
1: The conversation then turned to racial disparities and maternal mortality. What I asked are some of its contributing factors.
3: Well, I'm going to tell you what Hercer said in in some of these summits. One of the factors they called out was institutionalized racism. Mm -hmm. That uh, unconscious bias... And some of the interactions have left women of certain ethnic groups, uh, not only by race, but SES, to uh, less enchanted to come in to be served. When the services are provided, they're not at the highest level.
1: That's Betty Braxter, who cited the concerns of the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, related to race and socioeconomic status, or SES. There was also an arresting realization from her work that Dr. Barrero shared.
4: And I think we're just in our infancy and in sort of understanding the various levels of, of racism and how they impact health outcomes. What we're addressing is this interpersonal, right? How, how, how does perceived discrimination sort of impact? And that's a different level. And then finally, internalized racism. So, you know, another concept that we've been thinking a lot about is stereotype threat. Can you give us an example? So I'll give you an example from a recent qualitative study that we did. And women were very concerned about talking. So one of the quotes was, oh, my God, my doctor's going to think I'm a whore. Mm-hmm. And so we said, explain mm-hmm. what you talk about. And she's like, well, I don't want to talk to her about my uh, about my contraceptive needs because she's going to think that I sleep around. That was sort of just such a striking quote for us. Mm. And sort of these, like, they're low-income women of color. And so even though they didn't say, I know I'm perpetuating stereotypes, what came out was this sort of having multiple children, having multiple sexual partners. That the doctor might not approve. Correct. They were fearful that the doctor wouldn't approve. And so they didn't want to talk about, any of their concerns or needs, right? And so as we were listening to that, it dawned on us that this feels like an impact of internalized racism, right? Like I'm just contributing to these negative stereotypes about women in my community, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so so, that piece is really under-recognized and we're just trying to understand the various levels in which racism manifests and how it impacts health behaviors and outcomes and and choices in decision-making and how it constrains choices in mm-hmm. decision-making. Residential
2: um, segregation has been, I would say, the main ways in which we've measured in our empir- empirical research um, a form of institutional racism. So segregation, we think about it generally as the distribution of populations based on race or maybe um, economic status.
1: That's Dr. Dara Mendez speaking.
2: A lot of my work has been looking at residential redlining as one um, sort of policy intervention, if you will. So, redlining is a term that has been coined or used to basically describe how communities were, if you will, redlined on a map or not selected for acquiring home mortgage loans, or why communities, so not necessarily just individuals, that were not in, provided with mortgage loans or investments. This was actually a lot of the practices and policies were backed and supported by the government, Federal Housing Authority being one example. So if you look at sort of this kind of historical map of redlining for Pittsburgh, for example, many of the places that were redlined are actually, actually overlay with many of the communities that are historically African-American. So that sort of the task is, how do we look at these various forms of institutional practices that disproportionately affect communities of color, both historically and contemporarily? And then what are the implications for health, right? We can think about housing security. We can think about poverty and the intersections of race, class, and gender, in this case, around maternal health. A lot of the work around intersectionality points out that women may be more likely to experience adverse outcomes. In general.
1: We talked about what can be done to address racial disparities in maternal mortality and morbidity.
2: There's been quite a bit of work um, that we've been doing at the health department in collaboration with several organizations. So there's a local infant mortality collaborative that has included Healthy Start, University of Pittsburgh Scholars folks within the maternal child health space. So although the title is infant mortality, we've been looking at things beyond just pregnancy and birth, but throughout the continuum, so thinking about the life course. And some of our most recent actions have been around institutional equity. So how do we as institutions move forward in this work, given that we see this kind of ending disparity? How are we contributing to that, or how are we potentially addressing it? And so one way that we've done that has been around work around undoing racism Mm -hmm. and really naming racism as a core element that would be contributing to the racial disparity that we see in maternal health, infant infant health, um, as well
1: as death. It turns out that some policies actually contribute to these disparities.
4: A lot of women, low-income women in particular, become eligible for insurance coverage, Medicaid coverage during the time of pregnancy, which then they often lose 60 days days. postpartum. And as our rates of chronic diseases and pregnancy-related diseases have increased, this is an area that there's a great deal of, of need and sort of helping women navigate back into primary care, which is my domain This is a highly vulnerable period of time for women. Um, They've got a newborn and often multiple other children at home, and it's very easy for them to sort of neglect their own health care needs, and especially if they have no coverage. We're exploring that space a little bit more. How do we meet women where they are, which might be on their phone at home, Mm -hmm. and help coordinate some care? But I think what you're saying, too, not to cut you off, but just
2: to add... The systems in place have been focused on health care for that infant up through, for example, that example that she gave up through one year Mm -hmm. in terms of the Medicaid population. And so, women who lose coverage at 60 days, if Mm -hmm. they have pre existing conditions or any other underlying health issues, then they're not plugged into a system of care to address those things, even long-term. It's really focused on your pregnancy, and then
4: once you deliver, good luck. The concept of maternalism, that everything is focused, I mean, that women are important because of their reproductive capacity. I mean, these are the kinds Mm -hmm. of policies we see that sort of accentuate or amplify that ideology, right? And so that's one very, I think, easy policy Change, right? That at least up to one year. And as we start to track maternal morbidity and mortality up to a year, we might have more rationale or justification to push forward some of those policies.
0: Here's Jada Sherell, a community leader.
4: Yeah, I wanted to add one of the unintended
5: consequences of these policies that we see in community based programs is moms come to us repeatedly with subsequent pregnancies that are back to back. So Mm -hmm. if she loses her health coverage and isn't able to continue to manage whatever chronic health condition that she may potentially have, then in that subsequent pregnancy, that condition presents itself again. But also I think just that mindset of mom being centered around her capacity to continue to have children, she gets her needs met through these community-based programs because, you know, the systems of insurance are not available wow. to her without being pregnant it puts a lot of strain on community-based programs that aren't necessarily meant to cover basic needs but you know we, ha- we have to cover the need that mom has
1: so we wondered what can be done at the levels of the provider of the community of the family to help mothers and babies
3: you know I, I hear the word empowered families always have had the power sometimes they just don't know they have the power to really ask the provider about okay i'm having these dizziness i'm having these headaches not necessarily to accept if the if the provider dismisses it so women are very good often in letting others know what they feel you know what we have with this maternal mortality rate is very like in many ways when women have cardiac problems. It took a long time for women signs of cardiac, like an MI, to be distinguished from what the male has. So
5: there is a, an evidence-based model called Best Baby Zone. When it was developed, Healthy Start was a key player, and it's a place-based model of bringing together resources. You're serving a defined geographic area. You're kind of infiltrating that area with positive resources and supports. So Best Baby Zone is One. There's an organization in Cleveland called Birthing Beautiful Communities that is a designated best baby zone for that geographic area. We went and did a site visit in order to determine if we could replicate that model here in Pittsburgh and what it would take. So we are moving forward with that with Healthy Start as the lead agency. The Infant Mortality Collaborative is involved in the planning as well. And our goal is to just take a look at a model for positive change in one community in Pittsburgh that has a high rate of infant and maternal mortality and see, you know, how this model makes a difference in that community.
1: Jada Sherel reminded us of another way we need to take care of new mothers.
5: The mental health aspect. Mm-hmm. Perinatal period, there's a lot that's going on hormonally, a lot of stressors, a lot of uncertainty, and it's okay. It's normal to get help. It's normal to recognize that this is a huge change and shift. You know, we're not super women, and we are super women, but we still need help. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening. The print version of this story appeared in the winter 2018 2019 issue of PitMed magazine, which you can find on our website pitmed.health.pit.edu. That's pit with two T's. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Martinson, Louisa Garbowit, and Elaine V. Tone, with production coordination from Gavin Jenkins. Reporting by, yours truly, Susan Whedell. Interview by our executive producer and Pitt Med Magazine editor-in-chief, Erica Lloyd. Our music was by Lee Rosevear from the Free Music Archive. Pitt Med Magazine is published by the University of Pittsburgh's Office of University Communications and the School of Medicine.